Oktoberfest is just the best here in Duluth. Hey, Minnesota. If you like beer, we've got it here, here in Duluth. Hey, Minnesota. Duluth extends to you and friends. A heartfelt invitation, Minnesota style. You betcha. We'll all come out to welcome you. There's wondrous things that you can do, so don't be shy. We'll be here for a while. With yeah. music, food, and friends galore along the Lake Superior Shore, it's certain to make you smile. And welcome to episode 137 of Left of Skeptic. My name is Brittany Lind. And I am Kayla Moria. And we are a paranormal podcast. Yes, we are. Kayla, how are you? Really quick, we're in a hurry. What, <laughs> we need to get your hair done. Real quick, five, five <laughs> words. How was your life this last week? No, it's cool. It's cool. It's cool. I don't want to rush through that. I don't want to deprive our listeners of our amazing of life our stories. Of our amazing life stories. Ah, okay. uh, I'm fine there's not that much to tell honestly it, like i you were like you were ready and i was I like no i'm fine eh? <laughs> <laughs> um uh just getting ready for october festival yeah so duluth has our october festival my band is playing and i get to listen to polka music so i am very excited well you get to play polka music but also listen oh that's true that's true you're not the only one right. providing the music like as much as i love our polka punk vibe sometimes it's nice to just hear normal polka music which is what we will be listening to a lot of and dancing some polkas i feel like our listeners in like france and australia are like i really don't understand what 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 we like polka Okay, we love it, and we we dance to it. We're we're very German here, very German. in in Minnesota, very in general, German. uh, Polish, Finnish, you name you name it. If there's a version of like polka, they they came here. Yep, it's true, <laughs> it's true. They did. Yep. But otherwise, yeah, just uh, getting ready to go do that. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm on day eight of 14 for gluten-free testing. How's, how's it doing? How's it going? Um, I do feel so much better. Good. In general. Although I have decided that because it was Earth Rider Fest on Saturday, I couldn't have any of the beer. And also their seltzers are 10%. Oh yeah, that'll that'll sneak up on you. Yeah, you know, I tried to really cut it with some hop water. You know, but it, it snuck up on me good and non-gluten things don't give you the satisfaction of gluten things after a night of having some, yeah, some beverages. Well, also, um, those seltzers, the, the Earth Rider seltzers, if you haven't heard us talk about them in the past, are like a drink-based seltzer. So while most seltzers are like 5%. Right. Like, these are stronger than you feel like they're gonna be yes because they just because they don't taste any stronger mm -mm. than like a normal like four or five percent mm -mm. seltzer but god damn they'll get you <laughs> they'll get you good so uh yeah you have a story to tell me i do i kind of have a 
Okay. Have you ever heard of the the top five beatdown? Top no. Okay. okay. Beatdown. So top five beatdown is a watcher YouTube show. Uh, okay. created by Ryan Bergara. Oh, okay. So if you haven't heard us talk about Watcher before, Watcher is what the hosts of BuzzFeed Unsolved created their own company because I become obsessed with companies that break off from BuzzFeed. Try Guys, Watcher, you mm-hmm. name it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the show features Bergara and Shane Madey as they compare top five lists for seemingly mundane and ridiculous topics that like people have very strong opinions about. Okay. So, like, they have the um, top five pizza chains, top five types of chips, top five Marvel character deaths. Like, you name it, they have it on there, and things that you shouldn't care that much about, but you really I, do. You I find can yourself definitely see people being enraged yeah. by those. You find yourself watching and just being like, no, that's no, or yeah, you're right, and... So the we Sean and I blazed through a bunch of these, uh-huh. and then we got to one called Top Five Cryptids. Oh, oh! And that gave me an idea. There are so many cryptids out there that we don't cover simply because either they're ridiculous or there's so little information about them right. that you can't make a decent section of an episode right. out of them. It's like there's a a Fadoogle in Virginia. Uh, it looks like a swamp rat. The end. Yep. It just, it, it's <laughs> like, like, okay. The listeners would be cool. like, uh, so Kayla ran out of time this week and obviously <laughs> didn't do her research. So I basically decided I was going to bring you my top five lesser known, lesser discussed, and funniest cryptids. Yes, I am excited. Now I understand what you meant by saying it. I think you're gonna like it. <laughs> I think you're gonna like it. So you know Kayla, me so well, Kayla's top five funniest cryptids. Number five, and I'm excited to see if you know of these or not. Okay. The vegetable lamb of Tartari. Nope. By the way, when I was doing my research, I was basically just looking up like like. The top lesser known cryptids, the most unknown, the funniest. Like I was doing all these searches and I just spent so much time looking at cryptids that I now have cryptid brain. Anyway. (laughs) The lesser known (laughs) affliction for paranormal podcasters. (laughs) Cryptid brain. So number five, the vegetable lamb of Tartari. Uh, The vegetable lamb or lamb tree was a popular myth in the Middle Ages that described a live lamb growing from a very special plant. Okay. It was believed to come from a vast region of Europe and Central Asia known as Tartari, which gave the vegetable lamb one of its many alternate names, the Bar- the Boromits, which was the Tartar word for lamb. Okay. It has two types described in medieval texts. The first is a plant that produced little naked newborn lambs inside pods. Okay. And the second is a life-size lamb, bones and all, like bones, blood, flesh, but it just, like, was attached at the belly to a stem, and it grew there. Wait, did it, like, hang upside down, or did was it just, like, no, it a was singular? Like, it was, like, a singular stem that came up from the ground. I'll show you. That grew a lamb. Yes. Okay. I saved a picture <laughs> of it for you. Good, because I need to see this. 
It's exactly what I described. It's a plant stem with a lamb on top. Yeah, it's like it's like they put a lamb on a what is it? A pike? Yeah. But but it it's grew. grown. It's grown and attached there. Okay. <laughs> so in this version of the you know lamb on a plant stem, the stem is flexible, so the lamb remains tethered and can graze on the grass around the plant. Oh, I can floop it this way and floop it that way. Yep. <laughs> But once all the vegetation, <laughs> I like it so much. It's so cute. <laughs> but once all the vegetation surrounding the plant is eaten, and if it doesn't grow back in time, the lamb will starve and die. Why can't he just hop off that pike? Because if the stem is severed, the lamb will bleed out and die. The lamb is connected to the plant. I mean, but does it ripen? To the point where it no longer has to. Not according to this. It just, it lives its life on the stem and then it dies. Okay. Okay. Um, they didn't specify if it was a annual or perennial, so I guess I don't know. Now, if I were to eat that, would I still be considered a vegetarian? That's why I thought you'd like this. I was curious. I was like, can she have lamb chops if it's a vegetable lamb? I still don't want it. It's still alive. <laughs> According to Scientific American, the myth has been traced all the way back to 436. Shit. First mentioned as Adni Hasada, meaning Lord of the Field, in a Jewish text called the Talmud Lyrosolimitanum. Tell me you're not Jewish without telling me you're not Jewish. I am absolutely not. <laughs> Uh, by a rabbi. Like wolves, hunters loved the vegetable lamb for its delicate flesh tasted like fish and its blood was as sweet as honey. What the fuck? Also, could they really be called hunters? That sounds like more of a gatherer situation. Right? That's, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it was impossible to separate it from the plant unless the stem had been severed. So it needed to be severed specifically with arrows or darts. 19th century British naturalist Henry Lee researched this myth extensively for his 1887 book, The Vegetable Lamb of Tartari, A Curious Fable of the Cotton Plant. He consulted some Jewish elders, and he learned of an alternate and far more sinister take on this text. Oh, you're going to take away the fun now. Which explains the hunter's weapon of choice. He quotes a passage written by a 13th century Jewish commentator, Rabbi Simeon. Quote, it is stated in Jerusalem Talmud that this is a human being of the mountains. It lives by means of its navels. If its navel be cut, it cannot live. A kind of large stem issues from a root in the earth on which this animal, called fadua, grows, such as gourds and melons. Only the fatua has, in all respects, a human shape in face, body, hands, and feet. What the fuck? No creature can approach within the tether of the stem, for it seizes and kills them. When they want to capture it, no man dares approach it. They tear at the stem until it is ruptured, whereupon the animal dies. So basically they're saying that in the ancient texts, there are some that indicate that this was not a lamb. It was a Human. humanoid creature that grew on this plant and would kill you if you tried to get near its stem because it would kill it. I mean, I guess, like, lamb of God, lamb... Oh, I suppose Child. that makes sense. I didn't even think about that. Oh, that is still very upsetting. I mean, the the lamb part being killed was upsetting enough, but... So the idea of this hideous man plant was too much 
So many chose to just continue on with the much sweeter story of, like, the woolly lamb plant. Yeah. This uh, vegetable lamb myth gave rise to an equally hilarious creature, the barnacle goose. (laughs) The myth of the barnacle goose started off by describing uh, marsh birds as growing on trees, often in pods, and then dropping off into the water below when ripe. Okay, see, at least this one drops off when ripe. Yep. In a, in uh, year 1187, a Welsh clergyman and archdeacon named Geraldus Cambrinennis greatly influenced the myth by describing the barnacle goose as being produced not by living trees but by driftwood. And he said he had seen it with his own eyes, more than a thousand minute bodies of these birds hanging from one piece of timber on the shore. So... <laughs> So yeah, uh, man plant, lamb plant, barnacle goose, you you name it, it's all kind of stemmed from the same area. I apologize, like I like to do, for my terrible mispronunciations in that situation. But yeah, number five can be any number of plant-born animals, but most specifically the vegetable lamb of Tartari. And the barnacle goose. <laughs> you know, that would be really convenient for sailors, though. Yeah, very. That if goose geese uh grew on the side of their ship and in barnacles if you got a problem with barnacle gooses you got a problem with me and i suggest you let that one marinate (laughs) preferably with some sort of garlic sauce i don't know (laughs) i don't know what you eat with goose (laughs) number four the snallygaster no nope don't know this one either so if you currently live or have lived in maryland you may have heard of this creature. Okay. For centuries, this cryptid has terrified the people of Frederick County, Maryland. It is described as a half reptile, half bird. And some descriptions describe it as having a beak-like metal, which was lined with razor-sharp teeth. Jesus. And sometimes it is described as having octopus-like tentacles that shoot from its mouth. What the fuck? So a... uh, a bird reptile with a metal beak, sharp, like, teeth, and octopus tentacles that come out. Like, something out of an anime. <laughs> okay, I accept all of this except for the metal beak. <laughs> like, that can't just grow. Well, I think it's more like, they said metal-like. So I think oh, it's, okay. like, shiny and really hard. Oh. Um, it lives deep in South Mountain's caves and will swoop silently down from the sky Stealing animals or even small children from the local farm families. Mm, yeah, with the octopus tentacles. With Yeah, it, that's what it's saying is it comes down and like grabs at people and swoops them up. The earliest descriptions of the Snallygaster claimed that it sucked the blood from its victims like a big, scary big bird vampire. Oh my God. <laughs> oh. So this area was settled by German in- immigrants in the 1730s. Uh, they called the creature a Schnellergeist, meaning quick spirit in German. So that's probably how they got to the word snelly, snallygaster. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Schnellergeist. The earliest folklore mixes the half-bird features with the nightmarish features of demons and ghouls, because that's what they loved to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The story of the snallygaster was mostly just folktales passed through, like, word of mouth, like mm-hmm. a lot of what we've talked about. Germans love to scare their children. <laughs> Until February and March of 1909, when newspapers began writing about the creature. Oh, no. 
Local residents began describing encounters with an animal that had enormous wings, a long-pointed bill, claw-like steel hooks, and an eye in the center of its forehead. They said its screech sounded like that of a locomotive whistle. The claim in Middletown, Maryland's Valley Register from February of 1909 said that a man had been seized by the winged creature. It had bitten him on the jugular, drained him of his blood, and dropped him in a nearby hillside. Shit. So this article hit national news levels, so much so that the Smithsonian offered a reward for anybody who could bring in the hide of the creature. Mm -hmm. And it is said that President Theodore Roosevelt considered postponing an international trip so that he could join the hunt himself. Wow. With uh, these first stories, it seemed like it had quite the flight range. Uh Uh, Someone in New Jersey said they saw foot-slash-claw prints in the snow. Oh. A man in Ohio said the creature flew over his land, making the terrifying screeching locomotive noises. And he said he saw it and had two enormous wings, a large head, and a 20-foot-long tail. West Virginia had a few claims. It said that it almost caught a woman near Scrabble, said it was found roosting in a man's barn, and laid an egg the size of a barrel near Sharpsburg. Yeah, that that little guy travels. But again, the most prominent location and where it seems to make its home is Maryland. It was first sighted by a man who operated a brick-burning kiln near Cumberland. He said he saw it near the kiln sleeping, and when he got close, it startled and woke up, emitted a blood-curdling screech, and angrily flew away. (laughs) It was then sighted near Hagerstown, south of Middletown at Lover's Leap, Uh and it was seen flying over the mountains between Gaplin and Burkittsville, where it was reported to have laid another very large egg. Oh, there's more of them now. The last sighting in Frederick County occurred in March of 1909, where three men fought the creature outside a railroad station for nearly an hour and a half before chasing it into the woods of Carroll County. There were no more sightings of the mysterious creature for the next 23 years, and then in the 1930s, it began appearing again in Frederick County, Maryland. The first report said that the bird was seen just below South Mountain in Washington County. It was surmised, and I don't know how they got to this number. I looked everywhere. I couldn't find it. That the life expectancy of a snallygaster was estimated to be about 20 years. So they think these new sightings were from offspring of the barrel-sized eggs that the creature laid back in 1909. Okay, so maybe it lays the eggs at the end of its 20-year lifespan. Takes three years to gestate. Yep. And then, boom, baby snallygaster. Baby snallygasters everywhere. All right, all right. The Middletown Valley Register requested that local residents who saw the creature should provide as accurate and detailed a description as possible for scientific purposes. Two residents soon reported having seen it just east of Braddock Heights, flying about 25 feet overhead, confirming the descriptions published the previous week. Oh, that's convenient. The next thing the heard of the Snallygaster is that it had died in Washington County when it was overcome by the fumes of a moonshine still and fell from the sky into a 2,500-gallon vat of alcohol. No, it's like those videos on TikTok where people put the gasoline over the wasp nests. Yep. And then they just, like, all die and fall. Yep. <laughs> I feel bad, but it's wasps. I know. I feel worse about the moonshine and the snallygaster. <laughs> <laughs> According to the story, uh, revenue agents soon arrived. They took everything away, destroyed the carcass of the creature and the vat and the contents of the vat that it fell into. 
I which, mean, I definitely wouldn't drink that. Yeah, I would. Snallygaster moonshine. I mean. <laughs> no appearances have been reported since. Oh, that's kind of sad. Number three. <laughs> I'm so excited. The Pope Lick Monster. Nope, don't know don't know that one either. And I'm not gonna lie, I picked this one because of its name. Uh, you love names of things that have lick in them. The Pope Lick Monster is a creature that many claim live under an old railroad trestle bridge just east of Louisville, Kentucky. The Pope Lick train trestle over Pope Lick Creek. If you can't tell, I'm just using any opportunity that I can to say Pope Lick. <laughs> I wanted to, I, I forgot to, I wanted to look up why it's called Pope Lick, but I didn't. It got really friendly the last time the Pope visited the U.S. Every article that allowed comments uh-huh. just had things of people saying like, poop lick. <laughs> like, no, gross. And then I was telling Sean about it and he goes, you should just add an extra O and then it could be poopy, poopy lick. I was like, no, gross. Pope Lick. <laughs> That's way less gross, Sean. <laughs> Obviously. Anyway, so those who have seen this cryptid describe the monster as part man, part goat, and part sheep. He is covered in greasy fur with sharp horns protruding from his pale white forehead. He has wide set eyes, a hooked nose, and is equipped with cloven hooves in the place of his feet. When he has a head anyway, there are a few stories that describe him as headless. Oh, okay. So the public monster stands upright like a man, but that's where his human features end. It is creepy and apparently has supernatural powers. The origin of the public monster varies depending on who tells the tale. Some claim he is found as a product of human-animal relations. No. So if that's the question there being, like if he's part man, part goat, part sheep, is it like, like, Goat and sheep had a baby, you know, like a like you know if a tiger and a lion have something, it's a liger. So would Is it be like a, a, a geep sheep? Would it be like a geep or a shoat? Hmm. And then the and then the man has relations with the, the with the geep or the shoat. I don't know. I don't like it. <laughs> so you know, if you know what I mean, human animal relations. Um, while others claim he is the reincarnation of a local farmer believed to have sacrificed goats in a deal with Satan to receive immortality. So like a deal with the devil gone wrong where he wanted immortality, but his immortality made him an inhuman beast. Interesting. I mean, I would have went with like the Greek version, like, oh, it's just a cousin of like the Minotaur or whatever. The most infamous tale says that the Pope monster is an escaped carnival worker out for revenge. Oh, shit. Uh, he stalks the area surrounding his home near Popelik, either hypnotizing his victims or luring them into the 90-foot-high train trestle with his uncanny power to mimic the voice of people that they trust. Oh, my God. This is a part human, part goat, part sheep, part parrot. <laughs> <laughs> Just in voice alone. Um, so it is there on top of that bridge that his victims meet their deaths, often the result of an oncoming train. Other stories uh, claim that the monster jumps down from the trestle onto the cars on the bridge below. Mm -hmm. Other legends tell that it attacks its victims with a blood-stained axe. Those are usually the ones associated with it being a carnival worker. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it has also been said that the very sight of the creature is so unsettling 
that if you're on the trestle, those who see it are driven to leap off. I mean, you know, if if you're if you have two options, one of them, see what happens with this yeah. this thing. The other, jump off. Yeah. Eh. So the old trestle bridge uh, that crosses Poplick Creek is still actually part of an active railroad line. Oh. Um, the infamous Poplick train trestle has become a favorite spot for kids, especially ones conducting those bravery tests we've talked mm. about in the past. Kids love to do those. Daring Little someone idiots. to climb the trestle. Um, this is not a good idea. We are pointing this out. If you live in the area, do not do this. That's why I call them little idiots. Yep. <laughs> Uh, apparently, in the summer of 1987, a young boy fell to his death from the trestle after, like, evading an oncoming train. Um, and then another young boy, 13 years later, had a similar fate. No one is claiming those deaths as, like, part of the legend. monster. Yeah, yeah that's just a tragedy. But they don't know for sure why they went up there, but the idea being that it was probably people being trying to do bravery tests for that stuff. <sighs> Don't climb train tracks or get onto train tracks. No. For any reason, it's a dumb idea. It's so dumb. I promise you, you will not beat a train. And trains do <laughs> not stop fast. No, they do not. So. They really just keep on going. <sighs> but that is the Poplick monster. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Number two. The Ahul or... Ahool. <laughs> ahool. Well, you, you could just call it an ahool, but I like to go ahool. I mean, it is better. <laughs> it's got more flair. <laughs> Have you heard of this one? It's a little bit more common. Uh, it, that one sounds familiar. Okay, so this creature is a bat-like cryptid that lives deep in the rainforests of Java, Indonesia. Hmm. It is said that it has the head of a primate, like a monkey or an ape, but distinctive due to its large, dark eyes sunken into its flat face. It has large claws on its forearms, a body covered in gray fur and large wings, and you might think, well, couldn't that just be a bat? But one very like distinctive feature it has is its wings, which the wingspan is said to be over 3 meters, or about 10 to 12 feet. Jesus. Which is almost twice as long as the largest known bat in the world, the common flying fox. Largest known bat, Kayla. I said that's why I used the word known. And it is named after its distinct call, Ahool! (laughs) (laughs) So... It has been seen squatting on the forest floor, at which times its wings are closed, pressed against its body, Uh and its feet appear to point backwards when it's seen. It is thought that the Ahul is a nocturnal creature, spending its days concealed in caves located behind or beneath waterfalls, and its nights are spent skimming across rivers in search of large fish upon which it feeds. I tell you what, that really makes me not want to go behind a waterfall in Indonesia, which in the past sounded like maybe it would be a lovely vacation. No, you don't want to go. I I don't fuck with waterfalls, man. There's a Mitch Hedberg joke about that. Uh, You know, you have those shampoo commercials and they show people washing their hair in a waterfall. You know, that's fake because that shit would knock you on your ass. (laughs) 
What? Don't fuck with waterfalls. Don't go chasing waterfalls. Just stick to the rivers and the lakes that you're like used, you used to. to. Yep. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So, according to Coleman and Clark's book *Cryptozoology A to Z*, it was first seen by a Dr. Ernest Bartels in 1925 while he was exploring the Salak Mountains on the island of Java. He saw it flying overhead and was startled because he had never seen anything like it before. Yeah. And then it took another two years before he'd see it again. In 1927, at around 11.30 p.m., Bartels encountered the Ahul. Uh, This time he was lying in bed inside his thatched house close to the river in western Java, listening to the sounds of the jungle, when he suddenly heard a very different sound coming. Uh Yeah. (laughs) It came from almost directly over his hut, this loud and clear cry of, Ahul! So grabbing his torch, Dr. Bartels ran out of his hut in the direction of the sound. Less than 20 seconds later, he heard it again. A final ahool, which floated back towards him from a considerable distance downstream. He would later recall many years later that he was transfixed on the sound, not because he didn't know what produced it, but rather because he did. (gasps) He's like, I remember. (laughs) At one time, Bartels suggested that perhaps the creature was not a bat, but some kind of bird, like a very large owl. But this theory did not sit well with others that had seen it um, because they basically said there's no way that they did not tell the difference between a bat and the bird. They saw it. It looked like a bat. There's no way it was a bird. The wings are very specific. Uh, Some speculate that this creature may be a relative of the Kangamato, which is a large pterodactyl-like cryptid from Africa. Others have suggested that it was a living fossil petrosaur, which is like a like old, old, old animal. Pterodactyl, kind of like kind of not quite that old, but like think like like crocodiles are basically living dinosaurs. They're saying yeah. this is kind of like that, something left over from that long ago. All right. Uh, they base this on account of its leathery wings. While other petrosaurs are thought to have had feathers, they think that this creature would not have needed it due to the rainforest climate. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. S- some have said, like Bartell originally thought, that it was a rare owl, such as the Javan wood owl, which is a creature that we know exists. Right. Like a real owl. It's just super rare. They don't see it a lot. Okay. And they think maybe they got confused. So my question is, what do you think? A bat, a bird, or a flying monkey? <laughs> well, uh, does that owl go, because if it doesn't, then obviously it's different. Well, and that's just it. I don't I don't know for sure. I feel like they would have told you if it did. Because it, cause it does make a distinct, like, owl sound. So the question is, if it was echoing enough, mm. could a mm. hoo sound like a hoo? Yeah, kind of could. I guess so. But I, I like the so. idea of the flying monkey, because that means Elphaba was right. They did have bat-like wings. No, they had they had feathered wings. But still, I love the idea. Mm, I yeah. love it. I love it. Uh, before we get to the number one slot, let's give a couple honorable mentions. I'm ready. The ones that didn't quite make the list, but I did, a, like I said, I looked up a lot of them, and I was like, I got to find a place for these in my list. Uh, the Vergus Hairy Man, or the Hairy Man of Vergus Trail. Because you know I couldn't, do a list without include, including a Minnesota cryptid. Oh, okay. I think I know this one. So just real quick, just did a little blurb on these. 
the legend of the hairy man may make you think twice before going into the next hiking trip on your woods here in Minnesota. Uh, Vergus is a small town in Ottertail County, west central Minnesota. And the hairy man of Vergus Trail has been described as being eight feet tall, having long and straggly hair, a musty smell, and always barefoot, which is a bold choice in Minnesota winters. You know what, though? I'm always thinking twice about going on any sort of hiking trip, so I probably just wouldn't go to begin with. (laughs) He has been blamed for the deaths of animals around the area. Claims of his existence started in the 60s and peaked in the 70s and then tapered off after the 80s, like a lot of cryptid claims. Some people and families in the area say it was just a legend. Some say it's a Sasquatch. Mm. Mm -hmm. And others claimed it was just an old man who, like a hermit that lived in the woods and wasn't keen on kids wandering around his land, so he'd try to scare him off. I mean, fair. Either way, it was intriguing enough to catch the attention of Sci-Fi's Haunted Highway because they traveled to Minnesota to do a section on it, if you want to look that up. Interesting. Second honorable mention, the Oklahoma octopus, which got bonus points for alliteration. (laughs) (laughs) So the Oklahoma octopus is a cryptid generally said to inhabit freshwater man-made lakes in Oklahoma, including Lake Thunderbird, Ulaga Lake, and Lake Tenkiller, where it attacks and kills unsuspecting swimmers. (gasps) Also, why I don't swim in lakes. I do swim in lakes. I know. Look out. (laughs) Look out for the freshwater octopi. Actually, it's octopuses. Well, I'm going to go with octopi because I think it's fun. Okay. A slice of octopi. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. Octopuses. (laughs) (laughs) So, it is not said that there are multiple of these octopuses. So it jumps from lake to lake? Yeah, it says that it walks between lakes looking for food. Oh, God, okay. Because it is so large, it's the lakes aren't super far apart, So, and they're man-made, so there's no rivers that go between them. Mm-hmm. So it's saying it walks, and th- like the articles I was reading on it point out that octopuses have been known to like get out of their tanks and move around and be oh, fine. Oh, fuck it. They're really, really smart. Yeah. Little escape artists. Which makes it way more terrifying than the idea of like a shark or a crocodile because they're stupid. Octopuses but, are really smart. I mean, sharks are the least scary because crocodiles can also come up on land. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. So according to the rumor, this freshwater cephalopod is about the size of a horse. Oh, God. And resembles an octopus with long tentacles, eight of them, and leathery reddish-brown skin. If it exists, this would be the only freshwater-dwelling cephalopod species. Interesting. Although no physical evidence exists in the case of the Oklahoma octopus, many point to the high mortality rate and large number of unexpected drownings in Oklahoma lakes as a clear sign of its presence. I mean, do they have little suction cup marks on them or something? They don't. I looked that up. Interesting. I just think people probably shouldn't swim while drunk. Yeah. Safety. Safety. Safety first. Okay. Number one. The Loveland Frogman. I have heard of the Loveland Frogman. (laughs) So, yeah. Loveland, Ohio is plagued by a four-foot frog or frogs there may be multiple, that roam the marshes on their hind legs. 
Oh. The Loveland Frogman is a tale that dates back to the 1950s when a businessman claimed he saw multiple bipedal frogs along the Little Miami River. Just chilling. So after this initial claim, stories started popping up. Tales differ slightly from one another. All about a massive frog causing all manner of mischief. So A mischievous bipedal frog. The original discovery tale has three distinct retellings. In one story, the salesman was driving along, heading out of the Branch Hill neighborhood, when he shone his car's headlights on three huge figures. As the lights hit them, the trio gets up onto their hind legs and stand in the middle of the road. The man's like, rude, and honks his horn. (laughs) And the figures perk up. They twist their necks around and... (gasps) All three look at the driver with leathery skin and frog faces. Oh, shit. But they're not huge. They're only like four feet. Well, I mean, it's big for a frog. That's that's still pretty big. (laughs) Like if you're in a car and something four foot tall stands and stares at you and has a frog face, you'd be scared. I would. I would. I mean, three foot frog face, I would also be concerned. Anything larger than like a Pac-Man frog. So we're talking like six inches off the ground. I'm going to be scared if it's a frog that big. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Another version goes like this. The salesman spots the creatures under the Loveland Bridge like he sees them going under. And so he honks his horn and the creatures shoot out under the bridge. One lands on his hood and croaks and the driver passes out. Wow. (laughs) And then the third version, same bridge. Uh Salesman pulls over. He actually gets out of his car in this story and spots the creatures. All three are conversing animatedly. And the driver calls out to them to get their attention. And they turn to him, points his figure, like one of them points their finger at the friends to be like, shh, hold on. And then turns to the salesman and gives a look as if to say, can't you see we're like holding a conversation? Rude. And then holds out a wand over their heads, flicks the wands, and they all disappear. Ah, so it's a- They're magical? In this version, it's a magical set of frogs. Were they conversing in English? I don't know. It doesn't say. (laughs) Wizard frogs. (laughs) All this makes me think of is, do you remember the PBS version of The Princess and the Frog? Where they actually dressed a man up like a big frog. And I just remember that they were trying to. Terrifying. He was trying to show the princess how to waltz. So he had all these like, like shoe prints on the floor to like show somebody but then there were like shoe prints and frog prints terrifying <laughs> sounds that, that sounds awful i don't know if this is a real show or just like a fever dream i had i don't know but it sounds <laughs> awful so the loveland frog does have some reports like news reports uh, is there are they magical in any other ones or just this one <laughs> no just that one so on march 3rd of 1972 at 1 a.m the Loveland Police Department entered the fray with their own stories. Oh, shit. Officer Ray Shockey was driving his car on Riverside Drive near the Totes Boot Factory, and Little Miami River was right there, when a suspicious animal ran across the road in front of his vehicle. He hit the brakes to avoid a collision, and the animal, now fully illuminated in his headlights, blinked at Shockey, who was having a meltdown. So Shockey was shocked. <laughs> Stop. 
Framed in his car's lamp stood the legendary Loveland Frogman. Leathery skin, bright eyes, tongue ready to catch a fly. You know, just hanging out there. So Shockey reported the sighting and stated it crouched like a frog. But before he could do anything else, the creature climbed over the guardrail and jumped into the river. Two weeks after that incident, a second Loveland police officer, Mark Matthews, reported seeing an unidentified animal similar in height and, like, visuals near the same road. So he looked like a frog. Matthew (laughs) jumped out of his car with his gun drawn and shot the creature. What the fuck? He hit it in the head and dragged the body to his car. Oh, my God. According to Matthews, it was a large iguana, about three and a half feet long, and he thinks it was an animal that either got loose or was released when it grew too large, which is not out of the question. No. That's how we end up with a lot of invasive species. Yeah. Um, Matthews showed Shockey the animal, and Shockey said that it looked like what he had seen out in the dark that day. I'm sorry, that does not look like a frog. That's what I was like. Iguanas and frogs? Yeah. No. Exactly. Sirs. So, according to a WCPO9 news article in 2016, the former police officer who shot the purported Loveland Frogman more than 40 years ago said, the story is a hoax. It was just a sickly iguana. Great. It wasn't the Loveland Frogman. (laughs) So, that's just it. I'm like, it's very different. Like, the whole, like, people were trying to say that this solved the mystery no, of the frogman. But that only explained those specific sightings. It does not explain the 1950s sightings. And also, how much of a dummy are you to think that an iguana looks like a frogman? <laughs> it doesn't even fit the description, yo. Uh, so, there has been another sighting reported, uh, spotted most recently in 2016. Sam Jacobs told WLWT5 News that he was playing Pokemon Go in mid-August near Congregation Beth Adams Synagogue on Loveland Madeira Road. Oh, 2016. Yep. And he said he had crossed train tracks onto the banks of Lake Isabella when he spotted something strange. He saw a huge frog near the water. Not in the game. This was an actual giant frog. Then the thing stood up walked on its hind legs, and I realize this sounds crazy, but I swear on my grandmother's grave this is the truth. Jesus. So he was playing Pokemon Go. There's plenty of creatures that look like frogs there, but he swears, like, this was not the game. I saw this in real life. See, I would never have assumed that just because he's playing Pokemon Go that he made up a creature, (laughs) but okay. Locals have embraced this cryptid, naming the Loveland Frogman their city mascot. Yeah. So much so that they have an actual mascot costume for the creature. Good. Uh, Their city website says, Like a true Loveland resident, it loves the many adventures one can have around town. The frog is always up for a bike ride along Little Miami Scenic Bike Trail, lounging at Loveland Park, or paddling down the river. Growing up in Loveland, the frog knows the best spots for outdoor adventures, food and drink, and one-of-a-kind shopping. The frog is often seen around town loving life. Love and life, Loveland, that is. So. <laughs> Isn't there like a Disney movie where a frog rides a bicycle? I, well, I mean, don't they ride a bicycle in the Toad and Frog or Frog and Toad? Yeah. Or something like that. Something I never like read that. those. Me neither. Uh, and then also the Loveland Frog is famous for being the only cryptid with its own musical. Oh. 
Ohio writers and actors Joshua Steele and Mike Hall wrote the bluegrass musical Hot Damn, It's the Loveland Frog, which debuted May 29th of 2014 at the Cincinnati Fringe Festival. In the show, Luke Honeywell and his girlfriend Darla set off with a bluegrass band to find Luke's missing grandfather, supposedly snatched by the frogman himself. And that is my number one, the Loveland Frogman. And that is Kayla's top five funniest cryptids. I don't even have words. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I had a lot of words during your stories, but wow. Also, is the made-up musical the only thing that implies that they have any ill will? From what I can tell, yeah. They what? I so mean even what? the what even the magic frogs weren't shooting sparks at anybody. No, they're just like, you're okay, you know what? If you're gonna interrupt our conversation, whoopa. To be clear, I'm not asking for a rating of these because I think they're all a little ridiculous. Maybe not the ahool. I could I could buy the ahool. See, I like the frog. <laughs> of course you do. Why did I know that that was gonna be a thing? I don't know, but it, it's true. <laughs> but I can't wait. Because I have been all, like, this freaking close. And you guys can't see it. I have my fingers very close together. (laughs) I've been this close to looking up what was going to happen next in this San Pedro haunting that we've been waiting for the part two of. Because I'm so intrigued. But I did not. I did not look up anything. Good. I am here for it. Let's go. I'm glad. That would have ruined this, Kayla. (laughs) All right, beautiful humans. Beautiful humans. Beautiful? Uh... You no, got bootif- bootiful humans or bootiful bootiful humans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shake your booty. Shake uh, your booty. All right, so tonight I'm going to share with you the San Pedro haunting part two. Okay, if you so- haven't listened last week, you're, I'm, I get the feeling, go back and listen to last week's episode, at least Brittany's part, because otherwise I think you'll be a little lost. Oh, you totally. Gotta, you got to hear about Jeff. And I have a little bit of a recap, but okay. it does it does not make up for how much stuff you learn about poor Jeff. <laughs> Hence the title of the episode. <laughs> All right, so a recap. A young mother by the name of Jackie Hernandez moved into a small bungalow in San Pedro, California in order to escape her rocky marriage. At first, she liked the house. She felt as if there was a presence there watching over her. However, after a while, the presence seemed less great. As her neighbor Susan would say, until the manifestations really started, until it really started to show itself to her. I feel like that's still like a light representation of what was happening. I know. (laughs) It started small with a couple of pencils tipping off a desk despite no one being anywhere near it. Then it escalated to things flying off the walls, scary voices, the apparition of an old grayish man hanging out in her kid's room. And after a very spooky incident in the attic where a disembodied head flew at her, I'm telling you, you got to go back and listen to the first one. Uh, Susan suggested to call. Uh, Susan suggested that Jackie call a paranormal team that she saw on local television, with the hopes that maybe they could help. And help they did. Enter Doctor Barry Taff, Barry Conrad, and poor Jeff Wheatcraft. <laughs> the next part of the story involved Jeff going up into the attic. And being thoroughly harassed in a variety of ways. (laughs) And then we ended on a night when Jackie had had enough. She said that she'd been hearing breathing throughout the house. 
Voices coming from the attic, moaning, books flying around like frisbees, doors slamming on their own, lights were going on and off, and so she called the team to come and get her. They did not. I mean, they came, but they didn't take her away. No, and they're that's like, all she wanted. She's like, please take me out of here. And they're like, okay, but we're going to look around first. Instead, they marched into the house to keep on investigating. Part of that investigation, uh, and how we left it last week, Jeff and John Bob were up in the attic when Jackie, Susan, and the rest of the team were in the laundry room below. The folks in the laundry room heard three distinct snaps, freaking them out, and they started yelling, Get down here <laughs> to Jeff and John Bob uh, to come down there because whatever was in the house was now in the laundry room with them. And then poor Jeff. Poor Jeff. Somehow got a piece of clothesline wrapped around his neck and he was somehow lifted up onto a nail. He screamed, John! And it was such an unlikely position to just find himself in that John Bob actually had to bend the nail that Jeff was hanging from in order to get him off. Poor Jeff had no memory of it happening. He basically blacked out after he started walking toward the attic entrance and did not regain consciousness until he found himself basically being strangled. (laughs) And now, so they get Jeff out of the attic, and he looked fucking terrified. This noose-like clothesline was around his neck, put there by no one knows, And in addition to it appearing around his neck, it had also been twisted tight before being looped over the nail. So it was like hardcore strangling him. Yeah. And when he walked back into the kitchen, like down from the attic and into the kitchen, you could see these red strangulation marks on his neck. Dr. Barry Taff is quoted in the documentary. In the 110 years of formal research uh, of psychical phenomenon, There has been less than a handful of people that have been deliberately harmed or injured in some way by this phenomena. In fact, only one really well-established case. So this might be the second one. And if it was not for one of our other associates present in the attic, Jeff might have been killed. Which is scary as hell. Because I think we all assume that based on like horror movies and stuff, we assume right. if there's a haunting, you're in trouble. But like you're like like he's saying, and like we found from now over two years of doing this, most of the times they're not actually harming anybody, right? Like maybe they might throw like a coffee cup at your head, which it'll hurts, hurt. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not likely to kill you. Yep, and they're definitely not usually actively trying to. Hang you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes on to say, this is very different from what we're used to experiencing. People get frightened by what they don't understand, but to have it directly attack someone repeatedly is something that we can't really understand. It suggests strongly this phenomenon is interacting with us. It's not some sort of psychic projection. It seems to know what it's doing. Unquote. But this is not the only thing that happened that night. So it was, was it just the start for poor Jeff? Uh, no, he actually gets a little bit of a break. Oh, that's nice at least. Yeah, yeah. He, he's got some discomfort later, but it's just discomfort. Uh, shortly after the attic incident, Barry, the camera guy, was filming everyone in the kitchen when he noticed one of those light balls in the camera viewfinder. Now, if you remember, I brought these up last time. Mm-hmm. And I said that unlike 
orbs, as we've seen in past stories. These are things that you can see with your naked eye, and they seem to actually be emitting light from themselves rather than being a reflection of something else. So Barry saw this light in his camera viewfinder, and then shortly after noticing it, I think it flew at him, and he felt a sudden surge of electricity run through him, causing him to black out. And at this point, everybody freaking out. I would be. Yep. Jackie just wants everyone to go outside. Uh, She's like, let's go outside. Let's go outside. And they're like, no, just get him some water. And she's like, yes, let's get him some water and then go outside. And they're like, no, because the guys wanted to keep investigating. Jackie's like, if you recall, I called you to come get me. Yes. I should be gone. Please take me away. I We would be so far away from now if, like, you would just pick me up initially. <laughs> uh, cameraman Barry said in a later interview that similar to what Dr. Barry Taft said, this kind of phenomenon is very unusual. And it's a very specific kind of terror that comes from being repeatedly attacked by something you cannot see. Yeah. Shortly after the discomfort comes, uh, Jeff starts experiencing a series of really intense headaches, the likes of which he's said he's never experienced before. So he moved out onto the porch. Thank you, Jeff. (laughs) Uh, Not wanting to be in the house anymore. Yeah. Jackie, probably thinking, thank God, finally, Uh, is like, yes, let's move to the porch. And she goes, she grabs her kids, and that's where they're all camped out. Now, the footage, because like I said, this is all real-time footage you can see in this documentary. The footage shows the three- or four-month-old Samantha sitting. She's totally awake in her car seat on the porch, and she's just chilling. You know, folks are are walking around her. They're all panicking, but she's just like, cool. Uh, And then at one point, Susan looks down and sees something big in red on Samantha's forehead. Like, okay, you know how in some religious ceremonies they dip their thumb in something and then, and then put it on your forehead? Yeah. That's what it looked like, except for that it like was... Like Ash Wednesday, but red. Exactly. Okay. And it looked not like ash, but maybe a little bit like blood. <sighs> Just smeared right there in the center of her forehead. I was thinking, so, okay, okay. I was thinking, like, a burn mark. But you're saying it looks like uh, like something. It's a substance. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, and she's just sitting there surrounded by all these adults. And so Susan points it out and Jackie understandably freaks out because it's one thing to keep attacking poor Jeff. But now this thing is marking her children. Yeah. Don't fuck with you. Don't fuck with people's kids. That's a. Mm-mm. Uh-uh. Mm-mm. uh-uh. And she very specifically told this entity. She's like, hell no. Do not mess with my children. And in the footage, Jackie starts crying and she's begging. She's like, come on, guys, please, let's go. Please, let's just go. And at one point she said, what the hell is it doing to my kids? Let's get the fuck out of here, Barry. Justifiable. Totally, yeah, totally reasonable response. Right. Let's get out of here. This thing is marking my children with what is this? Blood? Maybe. I don't know. And then the narrator goes on to say that, They don't know what the substance was because silly Jackie wiped it away with her fingers. Like, yeah, bro, what would you do? Her kid was just marked with something. So she did the whole, like, yeah. Silly, silly Jackie didn't think about preserving evidence. Instead, just wanted to get it off of her kid's forehead. Again, reasonable. It's a reasonable response. (sighs) So within an hour, 
Barry freaking finally took Jackie and her kids out of the house. And not long after that, she was able to leave the house for good. Then, in October of 1989, Jackie and her children moved to Weldon, California, which is about 300 miles north of the San Pedro house. Jackie, emotionally and physically exhausted by this time, can't wait to get as far away from that house as possible. They moved into a modest trailer at the foot of a mountain, and for the first time in a long time, Jackie felt like she could breathe again. That is, until March of 1990. (laughs) She said in an interview, after moving up to to Weldon and settling in the trailer, I was still afraid of the night, though I knew in my own mind that there was nothing at that trailer. Because as far as I was concerned, what I experienced in that house in San Pedro, I had left in that house in San Pedro when I moved out. She did not. I'm like, I'm like nervous. I and I know this is like 20 or 30, 30 years ago. 1990. 1990. 34 years ago. Yeah. Okay. I'm still nervous is what I'm getting over at. Over 30 years ago. Like <laughs> over 30 years ago, I'm still feeling like. <laughs> One night from the storage shed on the property, Jackie began hearing strange scratching sounds. Not long after that those weird lights began appearing again. Mm. Then, one night, Jackie and a friend witnessed an eerie black shape floating in the hallway. Shortly after, her daughter's bedspread randomly caught fire. Holy shit! As was the case in the San Pedro house, Jackie's new neighbors also began experiencing the poltergeist activity. Knocking on the baby's bedroom wall, knocking three times, then it would stop, then it would knock three times again. And again, Jackie began to feel trapped by the terror that she felt in her own home. Oh, I just feel so bad for this woman and her kids. I know. I mean, again, they're really little, so hopefully hopefully they they don't don't remember. remember. Yeah. (laughs) Then on April 13th, 1990, two of Jackie's new neighbors experienced quite a fright when they were moving a giant widescreen TV. And again, this is 1990, so that sucker was fucking huge. It was a tube TV. No such thing. So that Ginormous. means heavy, yeah. awkward, ridiculous. So they're moving this TV when the wife in the couple started to freak out because despite it being off, she saw a face on the screen. <laughs> of course, the husband was like, what? No, it's just dirt. But, but then he tried to wipe it away and realized, oh, yep, that's an old man face for sure. <laughs> The couple described the face as an old man with really mean eyes that seemed to be staring right at them. I'd rather it be in the TV than in the kid's bedroom. Maybe that's just the beginning. But now they're like, shit, do we move this TV in our house? Like, it was really expensive. It was really expensive, but shit. So with the activity starting not only in her new house, but also her nearby neighbor's houses, Jackie called Barry who said that he wanted to come along and do another investigation. I'm, I've kind of got a feeling that maybe her and Barry have a little bit of a thing. Oh. Because if you remember in the last story, Barry, like, hung out there for several nights in a row, just him and Jackie. A little romance? A little, a little rom-com to go with your horror movie? I'm saying it would make such a good side plot. And wouldn't you know it, Tagging along with Barry is good old Jeff. Oh, Jeff. 
Now, after that last night when he was strangled, he never set foot in the San Pedro house again. But, like I said, he must be a glutton for punishment. Jeff never learns his lesson. Quote, I guess a lot of people have asked the question, if you were hung once and all the things that happened to you down in San Pedro, why on earth would you even think about going up to Weldon to follow this woman and her ghosts? Yeah, Jeff, that is what we are thinking. (laughs) He goes on to say that he wanted to finish the case. He wanted to see this through. And he wanted to see if he could rationalize this phenomenon in his mind to explain it somehow. All right, Jeff. (laughs) On that first night after Jeff and Barry arrived at Jackie's new home, uh, they got to work. Right off the bat, they were met with a black shadow walking through that scratchy shed flashes of light, and more of those self-illuminating orbs. And then Kayla. Yeah. Perhaps while waiting for something to happen, perhaps in the hopes of encouraging something to happen, Barry, Jackie, Jeff, and a neighbor named Tina decided to use a Ouija board. Uh... And of course, poor Jeff. (laughs) Oh, no. That laughter was actually just straight up mean. (laughs) (laughs) So it would be different if we didn't know for sure that Jeff is still alive. Yes, he is still alive. So we've seen relatively recent documentation of him giving interviews. (laughs) So right away, once I got settled at the board, things started happening. The table started shaking violently. The candles would flicker, and the planchette was answering questions so fast that they had to scribble the letters down as fast as they could. And only after could they piece together what the messages were. And they said it was weird because unlike normal Ouija board experiences that are more, like, simple, keywords kind of thing, these were full words, full sentences describing, like, reacting to what these questions were. Those playing the game could barely keep their fingers on the planchette. It was moving so fast, let alone being able to move it themselves. Yeah, so there's no way that it was like, oh, there's no way that somebody, like one of the berries was like, oh, Jeff's doing this. Like there, it was, it would have, there's no time for a human response to it. It had to be something else. Yeah, other, unless they're like super spellers. I am not. Speed spellers. Thank God for autocorrect. I am not Girl. a speller. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but the Ouija board was not the only communication that they received. So Barry described the night as, quote, we received more than just messages from the entity. There was a whole range of psychokinetic phenomenon at work in this room. At one point during the session, the board, the entity, Uh, while answering their questions, told them that he was a man that had been murdered. He had been held underwater in the San Pedro Bay in 1930. Uh, When asked how many ghosts there were, like residing among the living, Uh uh, it spelled out, phantoms fill the skies around you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. What the fuck? Uh, Like... (laughs) Phantoms fill the skies around you. Aside from being like a badass album name, (laughs) that is very disconcerting. I know. Yeah. So I'm just imagining us sitting in this room right now. Just phantoms flying all around us. Like we can't see them, but they're there. They're there. I bet they're doing that thing where they're waving their hands in front of our faces like, can you see me? Can you see me? Hello. She can't even see these faces I'm making. Uh, How many fingers? 
<laughs> it soon became clear that whatever this entity was, it was filled with hatred. Uh, quote, doomed to wander, it said. Jeff then asked, why are you focusing your energy on me? Why me? Because your badass mustache. To which it replied, because you are the likeness of my killer. Oh, that's not Jeff's fault. I know. And then Barry asked, is there anyone in this room that you have hate for? Jeff. And it spelled out (laughs) J-E-F-F. And then immediately after that, Jeff was sitting at the Ouija board and he was thrown back from the table like something punched him in the face with such force that he hit the wall of the trailer behind him, just like picked up and thrown chair and all. After which, Tina, the neighbor, smart girl, screamed and ran out. And Jackie went and grabbed her kids to take them out of the house, gave them to Tina. Tina's like, I'm not fucking going back in there. And then Barry went to go help Jeff. Again, reasonable response. Reasonable response. The women in this story are making the smart decisions. Except Jackie was the one who suggested the Ouija board. Oh, yeah. You know, she's she's got a bit wonky after all this torment. <laughs> yeah, she's just like, so Let's just figure this out, man. <laughs> Let's talk to it. Get it to leave me alone. I want to sleep. <laughs> uh, so Jeff was fine, I guess, after a little bit. I suppose once the shock wore off. <laughs> being <laughs> smashed in the face and thrown against a wall. Uh, though luckily for Jackie, the night was when things just seemed to be the most powerful. So once the daylight came, she felt safe and comfortable. Mm-hmm. And she's like, okay, I can breathe. For a second now. Barry, though, was like, what the fuck? So he went to go do some research. Because we have all these answers now from this entity. And scanning some old newspapers on microfilm, he found an article from 1930 from the San Pedro newspaper that said, The body of Herman Hendrickson was discovered near the 22nd Street landing. When his body was found, authorities believed that he had been met with foul play. According to the death certificate, an examination of the body revealed a compound fracture to the skull, but due to lack of evidence, his death was ruled accidental. Poor Herman. I know. And this information, they thought, perhaps, like, correlated with the information that was given via the Ouija board. They're like, maybe we know who this is now. Mm -hmm. With this newly discovered information on Hendrickson, a career sailor, it got Barry thinking about that knot that had nearly strangled Jeff. Oh, ropes. Yes, ropes. After consulting another sailor in the area, it was a bowline knot, which allegedly is very common and is used every day by sailors and has been for hundreds of years. Then in June of 1990, Jackie and her children moved back to San Pedro to an apartment building. Right away, she had a priest come and bless the new home. Smart, smart. Uh Uh-huh. She knew that uh, the thing was still there, though. And she was right. Objects continued to move on their own. Small balls of light would fly around the room, separating and coming back together. And in fact, the light was so strong that it could even illuminate the carpet in the photos that Jackie took. So Barry had really, like, drilled into her, you got to take photos of these things. So she took some photos, and you can see it. They're, like, weird balls of light that are actually shining light on the objects around them. This activity continued throughout Jackie's apartment for quite a while. 
Uh, they kept going in to investigate Barry and Jeff. Jeff kept going. Why? I don't know. <laughs> but he did. Uh, eventually, she essentially moved from house to house until it just kind of stopped. Like, until Herman got bored. Yeah. Like, really? He's like the 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 people that go from house to house every year with renters because yeah. they don't renew their leases. And eventually, one roommate is just like, you know what? I'm just going to stay, stay here. here. I'll get new roommates. Yeah. Yeah. So... That is, it's kind of, you know, rounded up at the very end. But, I mean, there's only so much of the same thing I can tell you about how this thing was harassing oh poor Jeff. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, so it pretty much continued the same until eventually, after moving enough times, she finally, finally found a place where it did not follow her. So, obviously, the documentary is a little older. From 1996, yep. yep. But did you, have you read anything about if... Like how her or her kids are doing now? No, actually, no, because yeah, I a lot of things just kind of ended around that time, and the documentary was so full of information. Yeah, you know what? Assignment for myself next week. I'm gonna look up to see if I can find any updated, updated information about Jackie Hernandez. That would be interesting. Some part of me wonders, though, if you're not going to find it, not because she or her kids are not okay. Because she because moved she, on. She's like, I want to put that part of my life way the fuck back there, and I yep. just want to be, be here. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I'm kind of assuming that's what I'll find, but I will find the most up-to-date information so we can have a little bit of closure that in would this be nice. story of the San Pedro hunting. That would be nice. It seems like that is a very common thing in like these serious hauntings that you hear about. Yes. Or hauntings or possessions or anything of that level is like people are like, okay, it's done. I, I know you want to know, but I don't want to fucking talk about it. Right. So. Right. Okay. San Pedro haunting. Yes. On a skeptic scale of paranormal. Sorry, it had such a lackluster ending. No, it didn't. It didn't. I just, I just. I'm glad she found happiness. Yeah. I'm glad it's done. (laughs) Um, San Pedro haunting, skeptic scale of paranormal, para being five, normal being one. I'm going to give it a five. Dude, I'm also going to give it a five. There's just too much documentation for me to think that's a hoax. For real. For real. And like you were saying, especially after last week when you said they were recording it but they weren't recording it for a documentary. They were recording it for investigation purposes. Right. And then hearing the fact that it followed and it, like, there was enough space between where, like, it, like, a lot of hauntings where it, like, will have a lull and then pick back up. Yeah. I'm going to go straight five. Awesome. Me too. Me too. I was a little like like we talked about last week. I was a little hesitant, but this week, like this this final big event, especially with the Ouija board and every, I'm, I fully I'm fully bought in. Thank you, and you know, poor Jeff. I will also try and figure out what happened to Jeff. Poor Jeff. Poor Jackie. Poor who, Herman. Who knows? Maybe maybe Jackie and Barry ended up together though, and they're living happily ever after. It's such a meet cute. It's such a meet cute. <laughs> I I realize that for you and the listeners, that came out of nowhere, but the amount of times that she called to Barry in the footage, and she was always calling him on the phone, and he was always staying over just him, and I'm like, hmm, something's going on there. Something's going on there. Jackie and Barry sitting in a tree. (laughs) 
getting haunted, haunted, haunted. That wasn't very witty. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, uh, no listener stories this week. If you have a listener story, if you are a Jeff of your very own, (laughs) you know, anything, if you have a paranormal experience you'd like to share, you can do, like, you you can send that to us by email, leftofskeptic at gmail.com. You can also visit our website, www.leftofskeptic.com, and click the listener stories tab at the top of the page. Or you can click the link tree in our bio. That'll take you right there. You can choose to remain anonymous or include your name, whatever you prefer. We just ask that you please include your pronouns. You can also follow us on social media. We are on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter at Left of Skeptic and Facebook at Left of Skeptic Podcast. Well, we want to thank you all for joining us this Spooky Wednesday. Uh, we we love you and appreciate you very much. It's true, we do. Happy Spooky Wednesday. Happy Spooky Wednesday. Okay. okay. Bye. 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 <laughs> <laughs>